Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. And while you're looking for that, and um, when you find it, please stand to read God's word. Let me just say this. I realize we live in a world where everyone has got an opinion about what you need or what you need to do. For example, if you are sick, everyone knows what you should take to get better. If you play golf, everyone knows how your swing could be better. If you're rearing kids, everyone knows the right way to discipline them and all that. But it's great to know that when we come to the Word of God, and especially what we're going to read now and what, we're going to, what I'll be preaching on today, is something we need for life right now and something we need as we prepare for the life to come. Because all the things that people are telling us we need, all the things people are telling us we need to know, a lot of times we don't need to know that and we don't need it. But this we do. We're going to read verses 23 through 33 in Matthew chapter 22. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Lord God, we just thank you that we can come to your word today. And Lord, may we be astonished at your teaching, at your word. And may we believe what you say. May we yield to you, Lord, and pray that you would change us and trust that you will guide us in the way that you would have us go. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's very clear from this passage that I just read that what we need are the Scriptures and the power of God. That we need to truly know the Scriptures and truly experience God's power. It's very clear that we need that and it's very clear that the Sadducees did not have that. We're dealing today with a group that was waiting in line to question Jesus so that he might... So that they might trip him up. Now we're in the middle of a a series in the bigger series in Matthew's Gospel. Which I've entitled, Unrivaled, Christ's Authority in a Rebel World. And again and again what we have seen are people who hated Jesus and who wanted to trip him up. And who would not acknowledge Christ's authority. Now, in those days, there were four major schools of thought amongst the Jewish leaders, amongst the Jewish religious leaders. You had the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees 
were the ones that had come to Jesus right before this situation, and they had come with their mortal enemies, the Herodians, and they were asking if it was all right to pay the poll tax to Caesar. And they were trying to get Jesus in a catch-22, where if he answered one way, he'd be wrong with one group, and he answered another way, he'd be hated by the others. But Jesus answered very godlike, the the incarnate word of God answered and said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But you had the Pharisees and these were the political conservatives of their time and the religious liberals of their time. They were always trying to change the rules to fit what they wanted. They formed the minority uh, membership of the Sanhedrin The Pharisees, we know the Pharisees, and the reason why you don't know a lot about the Sadducees is because the Pharisees were glory hogs. They want all the attention, they get most of the attention, but you had the Pharisees, you had the Zealots, who were the terrorists of their day, radical militants of their day, think everything could be um, solved by raw might, and then you had the Essenes, they were the scribes, the copiers of their day, they wrote down... Uh, what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the preservationists. So the Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes. But then we had the Sadducees, next in line to test Jesus. They were the political liberals of their day. They were the religious conservatives of their day. They said you had to take Scripture absolutely literally, and if it wasn't in Scripture, they wouldn't believe it. But they had a big problem. And they were the odd man out on this. They only believed the first five books of Moses were Scripture. Everything else they threw out. So Isaiah, they didn't believe it. Daniel, didn't believe it. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, they said it was not Scripture. They merely saw the rest of Scripture as commentary on the first five books of Moses. And so while they were very strict in their interpretations... They were very narrow in what they would say is truly the word of God. So Jesus telling them, you don't know the scriptures. They are rejecting God's word wholesale. Now it tells us in verse 23 that they did not believe in the resurrection. Acts chapter 23 tells us they didn't believe in the resurrection, nor did they believe in angels, nor did they believe in the spirit world. They did not believe any of these things. What they believed was that you lived here on earth and then you died and that was it. Nothing after the grave. They had a very uh, earthbound existence. It was eat, drink, for tomorrow we die in their minds. The Sadducees had no expressed messianic expectation. They were not looking for the Messiah. They didn't really care about Jesus. The reason they didn't like Jesus was because they saw the writing on the wall. He shows up. First, he cleans out their temple. Now, they were the people in charge of all the temple buying and selling. The Sadducees were the uh, aristocracy of their time. They were very rich. They were very separate from the people. And they did form the majority uh, membership of the Sanhedrin. But they were very much separatists. They very much were interested in their own power, their own authority, and their own money. So what they saw happening was Jesus was coming in, and they figured, hey, he is going to cause a revolution. 
We can't have this because if he causes a revolution, our money, our, our livelihood will be at risk and even our own lives will be at risk. See, they were the political liberals of their day. Anything to do with Rome, the Sadducees loved. They wanted Rome to succeed. They wanted Rome to get richer so that they could get richer. And so they would do all they could to help Rome. And they saw Jesus as a huge threat to their own system. And the major problem of only accepting the first five books of Moses painted them into a corner where they had to say, there's no resurrection because Moses never talked about the resurrection, so it doesn't exist. It's like the the believer that picks and chooses what they will or will not believe based on what they think or do not think. So the Sadducees come to Jesus and they ask him a question. I can just see them waiting in line for the Pharisees and the Herodians to leave with their coin and, and they're just rubbing their hands together saying, we are going to get Jesus. We are going to win on this one. Now they bring Jesus a question that had been debated for a long time. They bring to Jesus a question that they had debated with the Pharisees. They quote scripture. In fact, they say to Jesus in verse 24, teacher. They come to Jesus like all the other groups with false respect. And they say, teacher, Moses said. They're quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it's very simple. Here's what Moses said. If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, I know that sounds strange to us. This is not our custom. This was their custom. This was the custom in the times of the patriarchs. And it sounds weird. It sounds crazy. But it was very good for back then. There is no proof that it was going on or being practiced during Jesus' time. But it was being practiced in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so on. What this was, was something, and it was called a Levirate marriage has nothing to do with the Levites, by the way. Uh, the, the Latin word for brother is liver, and it's the idea of the responsibility of the brother to take care of his brother's widow and to, to preserve the family line. In that day, it was all about protecting and preserving their heritage, their land, the 12 tribes. And so this was a situation where they were to preserve the, the family line. They were to provide for the widow. They were to protect her. In fact, we see other examples in Scripture where this was a very good thing. Just think of Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. Not the closest relative, but they checked with the other relatives. If you were married, you wouldn't do this. It wasn't uh, creating a, a polygamous situation. If you were single and your brother, uh, your brother dies, you would marry his wife if they had had no kids. So preserving the line, providing for the widow. They bring this question to Jesus. So here's what Moses said. But then in verse 25, they, they hatch this, this scheme, this question that is a real logical absurdity. They said, now look, here's the situation. There were seven brothers among us. 
They say it as if it was actual fact. We don't know if it was actual fact. There were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Okay? And having no children, left his wife to his brother. Verse 26. So too the second and the third down to the seventh. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm the the seventh brother, I'm leaving town once the fourth brother dies. People are dying around this lady. She's bad news. The second, the third, all the way down to the seventh, and after them, all the woman dies. And so here's the, the kernel, the nugget, the big question. They can't wait to ask in the resurrection, which they don't believe, in the resurrection, verse 28, of the seven Whose wife will she be? It's a logical absurdity. It makes no sense. They said, look, they were all married to her. Who's she going to be married to in the resurrection? They don't even believe in the resurrection. They're trying to trick Jesus. And they're thinking, hey, the Pharisees could never answer this question. In fact, when the Pharisees were faced with this question, they came up with lame explanations. They would... They would take a scripture that says nothing about it and say, well, this is what it, this is what it, it proves that the first five books of Moses, that there is, there is a resurrection. And, and the Sadducees would say, you're wrong. That's, that's just, that's false. So the Sadducees are not believing in the resurrection. By the way, they should have. We all know they should have. They could have taken Isaiah 26, 19 and believed that. It says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. That's pretty clear. They could have believed Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. They could have believed Job 19, verses 25 through 27. I know, it says, that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. But they didn't believe Job or Daniel or Isaiah, because they didn't accept them as truly the word of God. They could have believed the psalmist. Psalm 49, verse 15. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. They could have believed Psalm 73, 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. But they didn't believe any of that, and so they're coming with this question that's false. And it's a ridiculous question. But do you notice what they did? Besides all that, they took their life on earth and transposed it into a a supposed life in the resurrection. What they did, and it's very easy for us to do, is think, well, it's like this on earth. It must be like that in heaven. So they asked the question, who will this lady be married to? And I love Jesus' response. I love how straightforward Jesus is. I love how Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. Here's what he says in verse 29. You're wrong. You are wrong. In fact, the Greek word he uses, planeo, we get our word planet from that, the idea of a wandering star. And and, and in in fact, the New Testament talks about wandering stars for whom the deep darkness has been reserved. That's for Sadducees. You're wrong, he says. And, And literally, planeo means you have caused yourself to wander. 
you have led yourselves astray. He's basically saying you are out of your minds with this idea. And here's why. Because, he says, you do not know the scriptures, you don't know the word of God, nor do you know the power of God. You do not know the word of God that reveals who God is and reveals that he raises people from the dead and you don't know that resurrection power of God. You do not know, basically, God. You don't know him. You say you do. You're a a religious leader amongst the people. But he's basically saying, I know what you're all about. I know what your system is. I know what your program is. It's not what you're claiming. So they did not know God's word or God's power. And then in verse 30, he is going to explain. In verse 31, he'll do the same. But what he does, first he says, you, you don't know the scriptures of the power of God. Verse 30, he's going to talk about the power of God, how they don't know the power of God, and explain to them why. Then verse 31, he is going to explain to them how they don't know the scriptures. So verse 30, he says, in the resurrection, he's stating it as fact. Here's what's going to happen. In the resurrection, he says, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There will be no weddings like we know amongst people in the resurrection it's not going to happen he says but they are like angels in heaven and this is where a lot of people go wrong with this verse he didn't say they are angels in heaven certain people like to say oh so and so died and now they're an angel in heaven that is so wrong that's so false he says they're like angels in heaven how in one specific way Think about angels for a moment. It's interesting that Jesus talks about angels here because they didn't believe in them either. Angels, there were a specific number, a limited number of angels. They were created beings. There was no need for them to marry or procreate because they never died. And Jesus is saying that's the same way people will be in the resurrection. No need for marriage and no need to have kids because you're not going to die. You're going to be alive forever. Now, a lot of people get really messed up by this because they're like, oh, no. First of all, I'm married, and I don't like it. And then someone else might say, but I'm married, and I think I might miss out on something great if I get married right away because they think they're going to miss. They would. But here's the thing. It's because we try to push life on earth into life in the hereafter, into the resurrection life. Jesus is saying it's not like that at all. They're like angels who don't marry, who don't have kids. But by the way, who can recognize people? You might be wondering. You might even say, well, hey, I was married and my spouse died and I got remarried. And then my spouse died and I got remarried. So I've been married to three people. Who am I going to be married to in heaven? Not the question. Our, the, the true marriage in heaven will be to God himself. The, our, our intimate relationship of, of worship will be to God himself. And our relationship to everyone else will be recognition and the best possible relationship ever. With any, without any of the human life on earth junk. So for example, if your brother and sister 
make it to heaven and they, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're saved and they go to heaven, well, there will be beautiful brother and sister relationships in the resurrection with no sibling rivalry at all. And if you've been married and if you're married when in heaven, you will know your spouse not as a spouse, but as in the best possible way. In fact, if this was a situation that really could happen and seven brothers all married to the same woman at one time or another, they would have the best possible brother and sister in Christ relationship that could be imagined in the resurrection. And the reason why is because in the resurrection, life will be far, far superior and excellent and more excellent than on earth. First Corinthians tells us that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, the, the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Heaven will be so far greater. The resurrection life will be so far greater than what we know here on earth. So don't try to superimpose what we know here on there. Let it be what God makes it to be. So Jesus is being very clear here. You're wrong you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. And in relation to the, to the power of God, you don't realize what God is going to do. And then verse 31. He says, basically, now let's talk about the word of God. He says, as for the resurrection of the dead, which, by the way, the word of God is very clear about, he says this, have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus has words for those who reject him. Jesus has words for opposers, for enemies, for those who would question his authority and not acknowledge his authority. Words like, you're wrong. Words like, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. Words like, haven't you read what God said to you? Remember who we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Sadducees who were supposed, who were claiming, and then were supposed to be experts on the word of God and they had thrown out everything but five books and they figured that they were going to make Jesus squirm and they were going to to show the resurrection as a ridiculous idea as a foolish idea and that they would discredit him that's how blinded they were because in verse 32 Jesus gives them the answer that they didn't realize existed Look at verse 32. You know, have you not read what was said to you by God? And here he's going to quote Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Do you see what Jesus has now done? The very thing they said was not possible has been proven to them. This verse proves the resurrection. This verse is in the first five books of Moses. These are the books that they say they believe. It's interesting that you can't find a Sadducee after A.D. 70. You know why? Because after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, they ceased to exist. With such a warped view and such a warped program, it just makes sense, doesn't it? He quotes to them God's words, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you notice that God didn't say, I was? When God said this to Moses... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for like 400 years. And he's basically saying to them, right now, in the present, I am their God. Because they're alive to me. 
and I to them. Literally, the way this reads is, I am the God whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob belong to. It could also be taken another way that's equally true. I am the God who belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was telling them and showing them that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in this covenantal, intimate relationship with God even then and into all eternity. I am their God. Do you notice that he doesn't just lump them all three together? He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, because each one was in an intimate, personal relationship with God. And so, he says, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. It makes sense, right? The living God is the God of those who are alive. And those who, by grace through faith, believe in the Messiah are alive to God. Jesus said, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He's the God of the alive. They should have believed that, but they did not. So the crowds are listening to this, and no surprise, their response, verse 33, they hear it, and they are astonished at his teaching. What that means is they literally, their minds were blown by his teaching. They were struck out by his teaching. It was amazing to them what he was saying, and the way he was answering, and the wisdom that was pouring forth. So the Sadducees were messed up. That much is very, very clear. They, they should have believed the scriptures. They should have been experiencing the power of God, but they didn't. Because they would not acknowledge Christ's authority. Now most of the people I hang around with, they want to acknowledge Christ's authority. Most of the people that I know say, hey, at least the people at Grace Church, said, hey, I want to please Jesus. I want to acknowledge Christ's authority in all my life. So what can we learn from the Sadducees? Well, it's very simple. Don't be like them. Amen? Let's close. No, we have more time. You know, we have a little more time. Let me go on. Here's how you, are, here's how you can not be like a Sadducee. I only give you a portrait, a, a rundown, a bio of a person who acknowledges Christ's authority. The person who acknowledges Christ's authority in one sentence is someone who lives by God's word and who leans on God's power and who loves the living God. They live by the word of God. They, they, they lean fully on the power of God and they love the living God. Let's break that down. The first... They live by God's word. They, they faithfully live by God's word. One of the things I've noticed amongst Christians, amongst believers, amongst followers of Christ, amongst professing believers, is this. A lack of confidence in the word of God. Jesus said, you do not know the scriptures. These were people that were supposed to know the scriptures. Well, I know so many people who say, I live by God's word, but they don't know what the word says. They've actually never read through the whole Bible before. If you're a Christian and you've never read through the whole Bible before, start today, please. You need to read the Bible. You need to know what you're telling people that you believe. 
Isn't that seem ludicrous, though, doesn't it? I, I believe, I live my life by the word of God, but only the stuff that I have read? Sounds a lot like a Sadducee, doesn't it? Lives by the word of God in hope of resurrection life. I don't want to leave you hanging here. How do you build confidence in the word of God? Because I know there's a lot of Christians who don't have confidence in the word of God. They say, well, yeah, I live by the word of God, but they, they feel really weak about it. I don't know how many times I hear believers saying, and not just brand new baby Christians, people that have been a believer for a while, oh, I don't know the word very well. I'm like, hello? You got a Bible, right? Just read it. Here's how you build confidence in the word of God. Number, first of all, time. You need time in the word of God. You need to marinate in it. You need to be, you need, there's a lot of people, by the way, that have beliefs like jello. They have beliefs like jello that's been sitting out in the sun. It's just all over the place. They don't know where they land. But you know how you build strong convictions? You spend time marinating in the word of God and you will, will, will wake up one day with strong convictions. But you can't just spend time in it and go, well, I, I know a lot of things. You've also got to think about it. Think it through. Roll it through your mind. By the way, a lot of Christians I know, they'll say, well, I take three minutes a day. Three minutes a day of anything is not going to help you. You'll be dangerous. Yeah, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to study for three minutes a day. Hmm. I hope you get some customers. You've got to spend time and you've got to think it through. And then you've got to uh, figure out how it works in your life. You need to let it push up against your thoughts. You need to push up, let the word of God push against you and see what moves. Hopefully you do. Let yourself be tested by the word of God. Let the word of God test you. Are you in line with, with what God wants you to do? Are you in your marriage, in your family, with your kids, with your work, your community involvement, whatever it is, are you in line with what God says, this is what a person who follows me does? Matthew chapter 4. When I was thinking through this passage, I kept coming back to the temptation of Jesus. And it's very interesting. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 4. Here's Jesus being led up into the wilderness by Satan to be tempted. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. And so Satan came and says, Hey, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones become loaves of bread. Here's what Jesus replied. It is written in the word of God, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus had to ask the, the, the Sadducees, Haven't you ever read what God said to you? You need to read what God has said to you. You just carve out the time. I had someone say to me recently, in another context, I only have 24 hours. I'm like, me too. I think we all do, right? Next week we have 25 hours on Saturday. Live by the word of God in hope of resurrection life. And, and here's another thing. Sometimes we think, well, I'm just a channel of God's grace. I'm just a conduit of God's grace. And I've, I've shared that kind of idea before. But I was challenged recently by an uh, acquaintance of mine, Steve Machia, uh, to think about what Bernard of Clairvaux said in the, tw in the 12th century. He said, the greatest need amongst believers at that time was that they would consider themselves like reservoirs rather than canals. See, a canal can run dry, but a reservoir fills up and the overflow blesses many. 
And I like the idea. Every, every illustration breaks down at some point. But I like the idea of being a reservoir versus a riverbed. Because the overflow, you, you get filled up, and then the overflow blesses many. So fill yourself up with the word of God and let the overflow bless many. Most people I know are going off of crumbs on a daily basis. Crumbs. But the, the person who acknowledges Christ's authority faithfully lives by God's word in hope of, of resurrection life. The second thing is that the person that acknowledges Christ's authority uh, faithfully lives according to God's word and also fully leans on God's power. Fully leans on God's power. Yields to the Holy Spirit in their life. Now they get to the place in their life where they, they are taking thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. Er, taking every thought captive, as Paul put it. That it's a habit that is created over and over again due to repetition in their life. And you can start today if you've, if you've slipped and slided and maybe become like Jello. Um, there's a habit. There's the Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 type of life where you trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways you acknowledge Him and He makes your path straight. We get off on crooked ways because we don't acknowledge Christ's authority in our life. You could get to the point where you do what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.14. Guard through the Holy Spirit that indwells you the treasure that has been given to you. The, the gospel treasure that has been entrusted into your life. We've got to lean on God's power, on Holy Spirit power in this life. And when we do, what comes forth? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. The, the proof of God's work in our life. There will be fruit. Romans 1.16 says the power of God for salvation is, is the gospel. The power of God for living the Christian life, it's, it's rooted in, in, a, in a relationship with God where you're leaning on the Holy Spirit's power. You're trusting in the Holy Spirit. You're being confident in, you're being dependent on God himself and not yourself. Well, Galatians 5 says, walk by the Spirit, verse 16, and you will not indulge the desires of the flesh. Verse 25 says, if you, if you live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. You continue to live your life by the Spirit, in the Spirit, under the Spirit's control. And it's a, it's a yielding that takes place. And it really starts with a mental yielding. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a thing you think that you, and you want and then you yield to. So the person who acknowledges Christ's authority lives by God's word and leans on God's power fully. And last thing is that they, they freely love the living word of God. They freely love God himself. What Jesus was saying to the Sadducees is you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God because you don't know me. What did Jesus pray to the Father in John chapter 17 and verse 3? This is eternal life. That they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. To know God. That they, that they would live a life of worship. That they would not be enemies. That they would not be opposers. That they would imitate Christ, not mock him. The Sadducees were mockers. We want to be imitators. The Sadducees were enemies. We want to be friends. Matthew chapter 4. Back in that temptation, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Satan takes Jesus up on the top of the, of the temple and he, up on top of the, the hill and he, he says to them, he says, um, you bow down to me and I'm going to give you everything you see. 
Little did he know that he owned it all. (laughs) Jesus owned it all. He made it all. And here's Jesus' reply. Be gone, Satan, because it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. You should be worshiping God. Don't put him to the test. So if you live a life of worship, loving the living God, you'll live in in this awareness of the reality of the resurrection. You will imitate Christ. You will will be friends of him. You will love Jesus as your very life. Let's go back to that setting that this thing took place. The Sadducees come and ask Jesus to try to trip him up about resurrection. What day of the week was it? Well, verse 23 says that same day. What day? Probably Wednesday of crucifixion week. In two days, he would be hanging on a cross. Three days later, he would be rising from the dead. The Sadducees would get a pretty mind-blowing and life-altering object lesson right in front of their very noses about the resurrection. They could even see an angel if they stayed long enough. person who acknowledges Christ's authority lives by the word of God and leans on the power of God and loves the living God. Now they, they didn't realize it, but four, day, four or five days later, there would be resurrection happening. But we don't know the day or the hour. We do not know the day or the hour that we will go to be with Jesus or that he will come again. But we are to love the living God and know Jesus as our very life. Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is is your very life, is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time and thank you, Lord, for the truth. Thank you, Lord, for straightforward truth and thank you, Lord, for straightforward comforting hope. Thank you, Lord, for transforming grace. And thank you, Lord, that we are your people. Thank you, Lord, that you are the living God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.